Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company. And can I say again, thank you. The download figures are amazing and I am most grateful and humbled by your support. This is a weekly podcast about the many and varied pilgrim paths across Europe that people know and love as the Camino de Santiago or the Way of St. James. It's believed the remains of James, one of Christ's apostles, is interred in the crypt beneath the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, where the Camino culminates. James is patron saint of the Spanish and Portuguese, is known as Santiago or Sao Tiago. Look, there's an old saying, we travel not to escape life, but for life not to escape us. Well, my guest this week is an historian, a writer, scholar, blogger, Camino guide, the American-born cultural anthropologist Nancy Fry. Nancy last year delivered the keynote address at the Confraternity of St. James annual general meeting in London, and that speech was titled The Smart Camino, Pilgrimage in the Internet Age. It is outstanding, and I'll give you a website address at the end of the podcast where you can listen to the speech. Nancy talks about how the Camino has changed over the last 25 years, and in particular, her research on the incorporation of new media technology and how it's impacted being a pilgrim. Nancy says the rise of the internet is the single most important change in the Camino of the last two decades and has dramatically impacted how people engage with the pilgrimage experience before, during and after the Camino is over. Nancy's on the line from Spain. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you very much, Dan. Tell us about... Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to having a chat. Tell us about your 25-year association with the Camino. I know that it's impossible to sum up in, in a few minutes, but it began, as I understand, with a trip to Spain in the early 1990s. Yes, I was doing my graduate work at UC Berkeley in California in cultural anthropology, and I first came to Spain in 1992 looking for what I was going to focus my dissertation on. And in the summer of 1992, I made my way up to Santiago de Compostela. And that was my first contact with the pilgrims to Santiago. And when I reached the Obradoido Plaza and saw people arriving with their backpacks and the journey written all over their faces, I knew that there was something very profound going on. And this was a period of time before... It was something internationally known on as it is as it is today. And you say the first time that you saw them, they were glowing, and you said, "Yes, well, something's happening here." So, I, I'm, well, gonna, I mean, yeah, go on. I was just going to say because it was I, as an anthropologist, I've been I was interested in contemporary religion and religious phenomena, and I've been to other sites. Catholic sites, like, for example, Lourdes in France or Fatima in Portugal. And this was completely different. The pilgrims who were coming and the feeling and the appearance in those spaces. And so when you approached them that very first time, what did you do? You remember what you made of it later that evening? Did, did it all of a sudden dawn on you? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to focus on. Well, what was interesting was that I, I realized that this was potentially very interesting because I was starting to grasp the profound nature of people's experiences 
uh, asking them a little bit about where they were from and how long they had walked and and why they were doing this. I'd been able to pick up a few of those pieces. And it seemed like such a fabulous project. I thought that there must be already teams of anthropologists working on this topic. <laughs> so I was actually quite delighted when I when I went back to Berkeley another few weeks later and discovered that really there wasn't a lot being studied at the time. How fascinating. And then you presented later your thesis to Berkeley and you've been in Spain pretty much ever since. Indeed, you met your partner, Jose, on the Camino. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, uh, uh, in anthropology, there is a um, research methodology called participant observation, which means that in order to understand something, you have to participate in it, live it, experience it. So this was in my first contact was 1992. And I thought this is, I would like this to be my project. And so then in, uh, I planned for my next summer of um, um, being away research, trying to get some background on the Camino, that I would have to walk this Camino. And for me, it was this remarkable dream come true because I could combine not only my academic interest, but my physical my love of the outdoors and walking and the idea that I had to walk across Spain for my my dissertation was, as I say, a, a very special, special experience. Yeah, and I can imagine how excited you were once you thought, this is it, this is what I'm going to focus on. Indeed, this is right. go going to be the culmination of all of my college years right here. Th right. That must have been so, so exciting. Well... Well, I no, actually, I mean, I I didn't enter it as I entered it as um, when I wanted to to do this. This is going to be an academic study, and I wasn't going to experience pilgrimage in the sense that it wasn't going to necessarily impact oh. me idea at this time. I was going to be observing what was happening to others. So in that first experience uh, of walking, it was very, very profound having that separation from my home life and being in the Camino and getting a new sense of time and developing this. And my own life was and perspectives changed, looking and reflecting on, on my home experience. And my, it literally was turned upside down. So when I returned home, I made actually a number of changes in my own personal life, totally unanticipated. Um, it was like a tsunami, you know, you, yeah. I, I was like a wave, you got swept up in the wave of the Camino and, and I, uh, there was no fighting against it. It just, just took me away. Yeah, yeah. And is it fair to say you're still swimming in that tide today? Um, well, it's something that is woven very profoundly into my life. So it's yes, yes and no. I wanted to talk to you about some of the history of the Camino, uh, because you've also done extensive studies about that. What do we know, Nancy, of the shepherd? Now, if I pronounce his name incorrectly, I hope you'll correct me. Palaio. 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 What do we know of Palaio? Um, I actually, all of my history that I know is, is because of my research. I'm not a historian per se. I'm, I'm an anthropologist and I studied the contemporary Camino 
But in order for me to, in my understanding, to understand the present, you have to understand the past. So I have done a lot of historical research on the Camino. So what do we know about him? He's a very shadowy figure that we know very little about the, what the, the accounts or the, the scraps of information that we have tell us is that he was a, uh, a religious hermit living in an area close to where the cathedral is now, but it's now actually supposedly where the public market was. And that he was saw a sign, the signs oh, from yep. the sky, the heavens, the Fun. angelic voices, and of course the star, which is a very important motif that you see repeated over and over again on different legends and stories of the Camino. And and so and he followed that star, and and the story goes that he was led to the remains of Santiago of Saint James. Yes, yeah. yes, that he apparently that. Uh, that's one of the interesting things, of course, that there was nothing uh, in that area developed. It was very rural. It was forest uh, land. And he had to make his way through uh, a deep forest and bracken and 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 apparently come across this uh, old Roman mausoleum or tomb that was in the middle of these woods, unknown to him and to anyone else. And so and that's where the really interesting part of the story comes is, you know, when he apparently goes in here, we don't know exactly what he discovered, but maybe there was some kind of inscription in Latin and he may have had some rudimentary knowledge and he was able to read uh, this and work out that this was one of the remains of, I mean, the remains of one of the key followers of, of this inner circle of Christ. And that was very profound. I mean, hard for us to contemplate that. Yes. So this is above him and beyond him, and he can't doesn't know how to, you know, to what to do with this. And so he goes to the local bishop, and the bishop is was living, uh, had his his seat of power about twenty kilometers, what is now Padron, um, in Iria Flavia. That was where um, where it was. And this bishop Teodomiro comes and confirms this. Right. And so then, what is the significance, Nancy, of King? Alfonso II. And now we're talking about the ninth century, aren't we? Right. So what is the significance of Alfonso II? Uh, this Tio de Miro, of course, who's a who's representative of uh, the local religious authority in the area. He um, this is I, I think he's a really interesting figure as as a ground zero kind of person in this whole story, because we have. Uh, you know, whether you believe that the bones are actually there or not, at this point, we start having verifiable history. And we have the tomb of Teodomiro there in this cathedral. And it's a very interesting and nice place to visit. To me, it's one of the special things, because this, this man represents the beginning, really, of, of how the story is propelled forward and okay. sent out into, into the world. So he contacts the local political authority, who would be the king. And just to get a sense of how this area had no um, um, you know, center of power. I mean, it had this religious you know, diocese in this area, but the king did not have his court here. The king was about 250 kilometers to the east in what is Oviedo, what we call Oviedo now, in the, in the region of Asturias. So word goes to Alfonso II, the chaste, 
and he hears this, and this is a good thing the, that you might have this tomb of um, an apostle on your in your territory. Yeah. And so Alfonso the Chaste recognizes this, that this would be good to check out. And he becomes the first, what, in a sense, the first pilgrim to the tomb of James from Oviedo to Santiago de Compostela. And so um, uh, Alfonso II, he takes this uh, trail, which we now call the Camino Primitivo, which oh. means the primitive way, the first way, um, because he is the one who first came. And he recognizes this, gives it its you know, seal of um, authenticity that this is that this is significant and establishes the first church. So, so how did James's or St. James's body end up in Galicia? What, what is the, the legend there? <laughs> uh, this fabulous lore of the, of the Camino. And that's a very good question. Uh, there are various answers, but the one that is given and was presented and is, is held to be understood is that after James, we know that James, we have stories of him from the Bible to piece together his life. And one of the things that we, that we glean about him um, is that he is martyred in 44 AD in the Holy Land. And his body is, uh, and, and the way he's martyred is that he's decapitated. His head is, is severed, cut off with a, with a sword. And uh, his loyal followers want to take his body and have it buried somewhere safe. They don't want his body to be um, destroyed. And so they take his body and they take it down to, to the beach. And there is moored there a stone boat. And of course, the, this motif of the stone boat is very special, too, because it just shows this miraculous part of the story. Uh, and so these two loyal disciples, they get into this stone boat um, with the body of James, and it sets sail, sets course off into uh, the Mediterranean. And as it's going through the Mediterranean, it's being guided somehow by divine providence, and it makes its way westward and eventually reaches what are the Straits of Gibraltar, and then divine providence sends it northward along what is now the coast of Portugal until it reaches this place of what we now call Galicia. And the Galician coast is absolutely stunning. It kind of, if you can imagine fingers on a, um, um, the, the spaces between your fingers or the keys on a piano, the white keys being these estuaries and the black keys being mountains and there are these beautiful long estuaries with high mountains that turn into one of these uh tidal estuaries and it goes up the ria de arosa still looking now for safe harbor and it finally goes up 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 and it reaches uh, a place where it can go no further and that place is called now Padron. And one of the things that uh, I enjoy telling people about is that if you go to Padron today, and I'm surprised more people don't, uh, there is in the, the little church 
dedicated to Santiago by the river, there is underneath the altar a what they say is the mooring stone that that when it was tied off, it was moored the boat there. And they kept this as a relic, and they built the church around this morning, uh, mooring stone. No, that's amazing. So, and gets the name. Yeah. And Padron actually gets its name from the Galician word Pedron. In Spanish, the word for stone is piedra. And in Gallego, it's pedra, P-E-D-R-A. And a big stone is a pedron. But over time, pedron became padron. So it's the, the big stone town because of the mooring stone. That's fantastic. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. <laughs> That's just. There's a... many wonderful stories. I, I'm certain. Yeah, I'm also, yeah. Also in the same period, I don't know if you want to hear the story of the scallop shell. Of course, of course. That was my next question. Your next question. All right. So um, there are many theories about why the scallop shell is significant or I'm, it became the symbol of James. And they, there is no clear answer to this, but there is another, there's a wonderful uh, a part of the lore that lets us know how this might have, how it might've occurred. And they say that when the stone boat was going up in this beautiful Ria de Arosa, this estuary, that there happened to be a pagan wedding going on locally people having a wedding and apparently one of the uh, rituals of this wedding was that the groom would ride down the beach on a horse and the surf was quite heavy when he was doing this and apparently he saw this stone boat going by and was distracted by seeing something that he didn't expect to see and the waves overcame him and he was plunged into the very heavy surf. And if you've ever been to a heavy surf and had that washing machine effect where you're rolling around and you can't get yourself out, he and the horse were being rolled around and were drowning. So James is aware of this. And his first act of mercy uh, in, in Galicia is to save the bridegroom. And what he does is he elevates the horse and the rider up out of the water. And when he does, they're covered. And why the scallop shell is the important symbol. And Nancy, you just dropped out that very last sentence. So, so the, the horse was pulled out and the bridegroom and, and yes. pull, pulled out of the water. And when they, and, when, yeah. When they're, when they're pulled up out of the water, dripping, you can imagine the water dripping, they're covered with scallop shells. And that is why the scallop shells then become important because it was this first act of mercy and rebirth, the symbol of the shell as rebirth. So the, there's a lot of symbolism uh, also from European art of uh, the shell and, well, of course, the Greco-Roman world with the birth of Aphrodite up out of the shell and you can imagining Botticelli, that beautiful painting of her standing in the, in the shell and the birth. So it goes very well with pilgrimage uh, in the sense that if part of the experience is about change of, of the person and leaving things behind and acquiring new things so that death and rebirth of something new 
it, it, it flows very well with the, with the symbolism and meaning of potentially of the pilgrimage. Yeah, that's fantastic, Nancy. So, so let, let's, let's go to, to modern times. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that the yellow arrows are actually not an ancient thing at all. They're actually reason, reasonably recent. What do we know about Elias Valinha? <laughs> well, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. It's very interesting how it, it's, it, I'm a big, I push people, encourage people to read history because many times I run across people who think that there are these things that are super mysterious on the Camino. Oh, it's been like this forever or, yeah. and very little sense of, of, I mean, get a good history book and read a little bit ahead of time because there's a lot of everything has an explanation. I mean, just about everything has an explanation. So the Elias Valinha is a very, very special modern figure in uh, the Camino Santiago. And in when the pilgrimage in the late 20th century has its reanimation, its resurgence, uh, people are having to find their way to Compostela. And the Camino was not marked, of course, up until, you know, in the, in the 80s, 70s, 60s. You, you, it had to be re-remembered by the local people. Local people didn't even recognize people walking through villages as pilgrims. They were taken for vagabonds um, and you know, strangers, someone to be not trusted. And it took a number of years for this to happen. So in this remarkable village called Osebrero at the top of the pass where the payotas, these structures are, there was a priest uh, living and working there named Elias Valinha. And there would be, this is in the 80s, there would be pilgrims coming up the hill there, kind of wandering, getting into, ta into the little village and he uh, recognized, you know, that they needed shelter and that they were pilgrims. And he was a, a scholar of the Camino himself. And he had studied the, uh, uh, had done some work on, on the Camino. And he realized he wanted to help people, be a modern day helper for the pilgrims. So he, one of the things that he did was take one of these payotas and, condition it so that pilgrims could uh, spend the night on the hay, you know, inside and be able to have shelter at least. And then from there, uh, things evolved a bit. He also realized that people were oftentimes disoriented because there wasn't a Camino guidebook. There weren't, uh, as I say, way markers. There weren't uh, Camino signs. There weren't uh, anything to, to let you know where the Camino was. So he realized that there was this, these great, these deficiencies, and he could do something to help all these people who had this desire to reach Compostela. So he's the man who wrote the first guidebook to the Camino, and that came out in the 80s. And uh, that format that he used with a page on one side of history and directions on the right became then the standard model. So he wanted to, to help people. The other thing that he did, which was... Um, uh, makes him quite well, makes him well known or was a, a, a big boon and people don't even know about it, was that 
he decided to go back and research where the uh, sections of the Camino were using military maps, historical documents. Where did the Camino go? Where is it mentioned, etc.? And he went back and started to mark the Camino. And he came up with this idea of the yellow arrow. The arrow makes sense. It means go that way. It's it's universal. You don't need to, don't, not a language barrier. It's pretty obvious. You just follow that direction, follow that arrow. And the reason why they're yellow is that he got highway paint donated, leftover highway paint, you know, the meridians in the, in the center. And he was able to um, uh, get that paint. And apparently he went out with a couple of his nephews and way back on the Camino, uh, back in Navarra and this area, he started to do that. And from there it took off and that became the preeminent Camino marker symbol and still is. So here we are in 2018, Nancy, and a lot of pilgrims have been motivated to walk after watching the film The Way. And I've seen pictures of you with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez, the stars, and Emilio, the director and producer of the film. Tell me, is there a sense, Nancy, that the Camino was, in inverted commas, better, say, 20 years ago or indeed some centuries ago? I'm sorry, I, I, I missed your the, the key part of your question. Yeah. I heard most of it, but it was just the very last part. Yeah. No, I just wonder, is there a sense that the Camino was better, uh, in inverted commas, oh. say 20 years you ago or indeed some I centuries think, ago? I think that anyone you talk to, they will say the Camino was the best when I did it. It doesn't <laughs> matter whether it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Ten years ago, the first time you do it, that's the best coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will always have people saying it was better or, or sliding into nostalgia. The Camino has been in a constant state of flux since the Alfonso the Chaste came in that ninth century. I mean, his his way, the Camino was the Camino Primitivo. There was no other Camino. Then over the next couple of centuries, this Camino Francais started to evolve and, and to develop. And it has been constantly changing. Constantly. You know, you say in your presentation to the Confraternity of St. James, the Camino will continue to change, to evolve. A, a reflection of our times, resources, values and psyche. It simply is what it is now. And Nancy, you interviewed lots of pilgrims as part of your doctorate and it became the book Pilgrim Stories on and off the road to Santiago, journeys along an ancient way in modern Spain. So I wonder, how do the stories you hear from pilgrims today compare with pilgrims stories you heard back in 1998? Well, this gets to my my current research that I'm doing of how I feel like the, or I not feel, I mean, that I that I have witnessed or observed and researched how our new relationship with tech and our mobile phone devices, uh, those changes have occurred in society so fast that people have incorporated them into all aspects of their life. And, well, why wouldn't they? Uh, But there's a... Uh, I, I believe a necessary reflection that is would be helpful 
to see the role that you would like your tech to play because what I have observed over the over this period of time and I have a nice image of it somewhere um it's in it's in the it's in the video um and someone asked me recently for it on Facebook and I sent it out and people were passing it around but it has to do with today uh and this is new in the last 25 years uh and the last from the last 1000 years of this the physical experience is, is there and that is wonderful because the physical experience the walking the struggle the pain the blisters i mean you can't get away from that that is and that anchors you those pain that that experience the being out in nature uh and the powerful kind of meditative quality that that walking has that is there and that exists and that is very powerful very special the big shift the big shift is the mental uh disconnection and can uh versus how nowadays with our devices we are able to maintain our mental connection much more uh, you know strongly than we were before when one of the points i make is in in this image is that pilgrimage is a is a three stage process it's a type of rite of passage and this is for all rites of passage and in 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 all over the world as in the human experience where typically you would have a a preparation time a pre experience the before where you're getting you're anxious you're preparing you're thinking about it what's it going to be like you don't know you've got to go through all these motions and then there was this separation this break and you went into this ritual space which would be the camino or wherever wherever in whatever rite of passage you're you're experiencing and when you're in that space you're away from home you're away from the future you're you're just there mentally and oftentimes you're taken out of your comfort zone you're experiencing new um sensations um new places new people and you have to experiment with yourself and and go through that in that space then there is the the period afterwards where you take everything that's happened in this journey and you have the reincorporation so you're not the same as when you left now what has happened with our with our devices is that we have blurred all of these these three stages and rather than having a bracketed time away we are maintaining our mental connections uh very fluidly so you're changing that relationship of like getting perspective of looking back of evaluating relationships i mean if you're if you're connecting all the time with the same people um how do you have a distance to be able to understand where 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 you stand with them just as an example um or um uh and 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 one of the things that the camino when you have a significant mental break what what people experienced what they talked about before when you freed 
when you allowed yourself to get into that Camino rhythm, the walking, the that meditative element to it, that all of the responsibilities that you have in your daily life, the stress, um, things you have to do, places you have to be, uh, it would be released in the Camino, like a cork, mm. and it would like pop off. And you would all of a sudden start to feel and experience in the Camino. And what happens nowadays is that oftentimes people, rather than allow themselves that mental freed up, that gift of freed up mental space, they fill it instantly with connecting here, connecting to my, my group, um, asking a question, keeping that uh, what used to be openness is now filled. And when you fill up those spaces, it becomes harder to feel, harder to see, harder to get into the experience. And you talk about the invasion of our attentional space. That's what you're talking about. That is on one level. I mean, that, that's an interesting, that's a very specific um, point that I was making of our intention, attentional space. Uh, and yes, that definitely occurs. Um, it's... <laughs> There, that's that's part of twenty. I mean, our lives now. The way the way we in our face are is wherever you go, whether you're in an airport or you're um, walking around. I mean, you do have uh, advertising, and you see it in the Camino too. Yeah, areas yeah. areas that used to be um, just clear, you now have advertising, and 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 and. But now, I guess we do it our attentional space we do it to ourselves because we fill we fill it up with with our own advertising yeah, our own mental yeah yeah that's a very yeah that's a, a very good description I, I often ask my guests if they're a spreadsheet pilgrim that's somebody who does a lot of planning there's a sense in my view of of planning too much resulting in pilgrims not really trusting their intuition if that makes sense nancy letting the camino flow so that's well it, yeah that, that's true that's isn't one it? of my points in, yeah. the, in the article that I just put together, I'm, I put together an article for people who want to be able to think about these things. Because as I said, these changes have happened so quickly that people haven't had time to kind of really think about how, how it is impacting them and their potentially in their experiences. So one of the, my key observations, I mean, I think, um, has been about over-preparation. We have information overload. Of course, it's fabulous that you can find out so much fabulous, you know, so many different things about the Camino. But what happens with people, because anxiety is normal, it's normal to be anxious and want to prepare. The problem is people don't know when anymore to say enough is enough um, and where to draw the line. And it actually increases anxiety. So, I mean, I, I, I use this example you know, there has been in 2011, a new genre of guidebook was born, which is a whole guidebook, you know, 100 pages of how to do the Camino. Elias Villino, when he wrote that guidebook back in the 80s, he had one page of common sense information, suggestions, preparation. But now in 2018, when it is so much easier because of all the information, the knowledge, the way marking, the infrastructure. You need a whole book to prepare. Yeah. So do you do we really need a whole book? <laughs> or is this 
our the way our life is evolving. So my my one of the things is I see how these this um, relationship with the tech gives us brings us new needs and new neediness. New needs and new neediness. So so you talk you're about to release an article this week. Keeping your head out of the cloud, tips for being mentally present when walking the Camino. So I just, I've got, my next question is, how do you explain the energy of the Camino to people, Nancy? You've been involved with it for 25 years. And we all know there is an energy. How do you explain it to people? That is one of the very special elements that when you allow yourself to connect with the Camino and you, and you, because when you, when you disengage more and you allow yourself to be, that's one of the, the gifts of the Camino is this presence, is this being in this place. Uh, and when you remove the busyness and the distraction from your mind, you become more aware of everything around you. And this, the Camino has had for over the centuries has been an, an attraction point for people searching for different things. We don't have this religious worldview in a strong way as it was for most of its history, which drew people and that powerful sense of spirituality taking people hoping that their prayers would be answered, their sins forgiven. And in the same way today, people are oftentimes searching, searching for something since a lot of our, in the past, it was much easier. You had this, you know, the big questions were just answered for you because you had these total belief systems that every, that most people were, 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 were part of. And now there is this sense of everybody, all humans have these big questions. Who am I? Where am I going? What is this all about? And even if it's not that conscious, people feel drawn to this place because in this particular space, this energy, you might say, People have been asking and walking in these same places, asking these kinds of profound questions and interacting with others. And that that is a fundamental part of this contemporary, I mean, of this experience that is so important is that community, is that sense of belonging. And that is part of this energy. The energy is something that grows through the interaction People feel good on the Camino because they're interacting in a space where that energy is very positive. And the more you engage with others in the same way and feel good in that same place, that just multiplies. And people uh, are aware of that, even though they don't necessarily put it in those terms. So I, I think it has to do, people oftentimes tell me that they, uh, when they're walking along, they can feel 
the pilgrims of the past, they can feel that presence, that energy of, of others, and that they're part of this community of pilgrims, people who have made this journey for more than a thousand years. I guess that's how I would say it. Yeah. So just in terms of keeping your head out of the cloud, I can't help thinking it would be a great shame to miss then what the Camino has to offer. Um, that's why I have created this website because, uh, I mean, I, I talk about the tsunami. Uh, it's a tsunami in another way or, you know, shouting against the wind. It's, I would like people to be able uh, to connect in this because of my own experience of how I was given this gift of the Camino. I think many times about how if I were a graduate student now doing this research and all of my worries and my anxieties and how I would have depended on those, I know I would have personally and how it would have ended up taking away from my from my own struggles that I had and had to deal with on my on my own. And I so in creating this this website, the walking to presence and writing these articles. I would like people just to be able to reflect, to try to help them to have as profound an experience as as they as they might want. Yeah. And there's a piece on that website, walkingtopresence.com, where you, you talk about missing the Camino. You say, to those of you who are missing the Camino, here's one yeah. way to keep the Camino fire burning in your heart in your daily life. Remember, yeah. the Camino is now within you. The Camino is a literal space you go to. But once you are there, it starts to grow and imprint itself upon your inner being. It becomes a landscape within. That's a great description, Nancy, a landscape within. Yeah, it is. And there's no doubt the Camino changes people. But I just wanted to ask a question. I don't have much time. But if somebody is listening to us and they're thinking of walking the Camino, how do they manage the expectation? Oh, this, I've got this big change coming. I'm going to walk the Camino. It's going to change me. How do you manage that no, expectation? No, no, no. That's, that's definitely, definitely what you want to avoid. Yeah. It's... I, I, I use the analogy, but like with the over preparation, yeah. it's like you're going to go, you're going to go see a movie, and you've heard, and then you go to your internet and you uh, see the trailers, you read reviews, maybe you hear a few spoilers. What does that do to your experience? And, you're, and I'm going to love this movie. It's just going to be. I'm going to. Everyone loves it. I'm going to love it too. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the movie and you're disappointed because, you know, it's kind of like been there, done that already. Yeah, yeah. So if you go into the Camino saying, this is going to change my life. No, try to try to just be open. I mean, and I and I and that's one of my questions that I asked in my my dissertation of, of the 90s. Does the pilgrimage change people? And if it does, how does it do it? And actually, I, there's a whole spectrum of, uh, of experiences. And radical change is on one end of the spectrum. Most people aren't radically changed. There is 
maybe uh, people take home metaphors of how they want to live their life. They take home empowerment. Like I can get through this rainy day if I can just slog through it. And then you're home and you're thinking, God, this is just like a rainy day on the Camino. I can just, I can do it. Uh, these kinds of, you know, living with less, uh, I can look how happy I am. And I just have the things in my backpack. I just have the company of others. Uh, those are the kinds of changes that people experience. But if you go in thinking and looking for the epiphany, you know, the, the that you're setting yourself up to be disappointed is yeah. what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're just about out of time. And Nancy, you've been so generous with your time. Just quickly tell us about On Foot in Spain, your, your, the business that you've been running with your partner, Jose, for, for more than two decades, On Foot in Spain. Yeah, this will be our 19th season. Right. Uh, yes, Jose and I met when I was doing my, my research, uh, then later on, 94, 95, and we started to collaborate, uh, and we now, as I say, we've been doing it for, for 19 years, and we do trips on the, the Camino Santiago, but we also do trips in other parts of, of northern Spain, and that has been an incredibly rewarding experience, and being able to be on the Camino <laughs> all the time is, is, is very special. Is a guided tour for everyone, do you think, Nancy? Uh, no. I mean, I, I, I believe everyone should make their, their different choices uh, and what they feel is right for them. I think the guided tour is fabulous, especially when you have someone who, I mean, because there's this, there's this concern that people have of authenticity. They're developed in the 19th in the in the late 20th century on the Camino that there was a certain way and that there's this formula and if you follow the Camino and do it the right way then you're a real pilgrim an authentic pilgrim and that ends up limiting people and closing them and rather than being an open space you put up barriers and become judgmental and I try to avoid that completely so I believe that there's different types of experiences and different ways of doing the Camino and trying to put them into hierarchies of, of what is right or better, going to give you a more, you know, a certain type of experience is, is, is not very helpful. And a guided tour can be a, a fabulous way to enter into the experience. On our, on our trips, um, the amount of history that people get and understanding of the Camino um, in can no way compare what a standard walking pilgrim without any you know references can get i mean it's just it's just very different and do you actually know how many caminos you have walked no i'm not into numbers and yeah. more is better and all that stuff and i don't know a lot what, a lot <laughs> what about a favorite space on the camino oh that's an interesting question oh there's so many hey, you know talk about that landscape you know it's yeah. just it's this really beautiful, you know, landscape within. It is, um, uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I will, I will say one space that had, I think, a pretty profound impact on me. And it also relates to, in a way, this, my, my current research. And it's not as if it was a space that I 
mm. light as in, I mean, I would want to live there. It was more of an experience of space. And I walked one evening on a full moon in the Meseta with a couple of friends and we left Ornillos del Camino and it was in the middle of absolutely nowhere, silent, just massive stars plus, well, I mean, and the moon. And at one point we said, let's just lay down in this, in this field of wheat. And we did. And I sat there looking and I remember thinking, this is back in 1993, thinking, no one knows where I am right now. You know, I am just here up looking up at the sky and it was just very, very powerful. So that's a special, special space, the Meseta. And if someone's thinking of walking, what advice would you give them? Be open. Enjoy it. Don't over-prepare. Yeah. yeah. I mean, prepare. It's important to prepare. I'm not saying just go out and, and, and do it. It's important to prepare mentally and physically, but just take it as it comes. Try to take it as it comes and not over-control over it. I was going to say I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. It's been fantastic, but I just looked at the time. I've been talking to for almost 50 minutes, and it's Saturday night there. I'll let you go. Um, I, I just really enjoyed talking to you, and I wanted to say thank you for your scholarship and indeed your generosity in sharing with my listeners your love for the Camino. It's been terrific talking to you. Thank you, Dan. I enjoy talking to you too. Buen Camino, Nancy. I hope our paths cross at some stage. <laughs> okay. Buen Camino. The cultural anthropologist Nancy Fry, my guest this week. You can read Nancy's writing at walkingtopresence.com. Walkingtopresence.com. And you can learn about Nancy and her partner Jose's guide, uh, guided tours on onfootinspain.com onfootinspain.com and Nancy's book Pilgrim Stories On and Off the Road to Santiago Journeys Along an Ancient Way in Modern Spain is available online. Just Google Nancy Fry and the Camino and you'll find it easily. As I said, I'm thoroughly enjoyed talking to Nancy and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm Dan Mullins and I'll be back again next week with another podcast to Tuesday night in Sydney, early Tuesday in the Northern Hemisphere. Until next week, Buen Camino. Buen Camino.